Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we break down Mad Max one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are talking about Minute 92, which begins with cast credits and it ends with credits for Wardrobe, The Mechanics, and others. So we are right back in the thick of credits and we're going to run through a couple of the credits that we see listed before we go back into more analytical questions that I have left over from yesterday. Yeah, we spent a lot of time during the movie, introduction of characters, talking about the actors and what else they have done. And we have not taken an opportunity before now to talk about the behind the scenes people and Mm -hmm. what else they have done. So this will be interesting. Although there is one character who received credit within the alphabetical listing of names Mm -hmm. that we didn't talk to during the movie because he kind of came and went really quickly. And that is, believe it or not, the TV newsreader has a credit in amongst the alphabetical names. I'm not really so concerned with the list of actors that were kind of in the end section that didn't really have characters attributed to them. But the TV newscaster is played by a guy named Neil Thompson. He has a top four on IMDb, which includes Mad Max in 1977. He was in the Kentucky Fried Movie, where he played another newscaster. In 1981, he was in Modern Problems, where he played controller number one. And in 1994, he was in Le Secret de Jérôme, uh, where he played Charles McIntyre. <laughs> Okay. You're going to say that with a French accent? No, because it's Charles McIntyre. It might as well just be Chuck. (laughs) So Thompson was actually in 18 episodes of Prisoner Cell Block H, including, I think, three that we've already seen at this point. Oh, no. He... Yeah, who? Pretty much plays detectives and inspectors and police characters. Oh, okay. Like, one of those guys that just... Comes around for a couple episodes and then disappears for a while and then he comes back and disappears yeah. again. He was also in five episodes of Division 4, six episodes of Matlock Police, and 11 episodes of Homicide. And he was a big television actor. And some of the other notable shows that he was on include MASH, Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days, The Love Boat. He was on Neighbors because, of course, everyone was on Neighbors. <laughs> like, he got around. yeah. Like, he, at one point, picked up, moved to America, started acting in American TV shows, went back to Australia again at some point. Not bad for a guy just reading the news. Absolutely. On the TV, that's for sure. So after the title card with him on it, we get all of the people that didn't necessarily have character names. Um, Telford Jackson is on there. He was one of the old guys in Fat Nancy's, the one from... uh, the Magic Boomerang show. Uh, Peter Culpin, who I'm pretty sure was the the guy sitting next to the woman driving the van that got driven through. D Trailer, the woman who actually was driving the truck that was pulling the trailer, she's on this page. As well as Brendan Young, the little toddler that almost got run over. Ah. Toddlers are dumb. <laughs> After that card, we get producers, editors, directors, the costume designer. And this page specifically, I had the motivation to actually fill out <laughs> and get some of this cool information. 
So the associate producer at the top of the page is Bill Miller, which is actually George Miller's brother. So George was directing, Bill was one of the producers keeping an eye on things. And Bill actually came back as a producer on several of George's other movies, including the Babe series and the Happy Feet movies. Not so much the Mad Max movies, but more of the the other variety. I, I think it shows that they have a, a good working relationship, which is good for brothers. It's hard to work with your siblings. Yeah. So if they were able to manage it, manage it, kudos. Kudos to them. So right underneath Bill Miller are the editors for the movie, Tony Patterson and Cliff Hayes. Patterson and Hayes, their first editing credit was for the TV show Homicide. So they got their start editing the crime show, and then they very quickly went on to Mad Max and lent their expertise to George as he was going through all of the footage that they had shot. Okay. Right underneath them is the director of photography, David Egby, who we've talked about before. Um, he was He's one of the guys on the uh, behind-the-scenes commentary, correct? Exactly. Okay. So, so we've heard lots from him. Yeah. He's had a long career. He has been either the cinematographer or director of photography. Uh, there's a slight difference between those terms. Cinematographer is usually the one behind the camera. The director of photography means that there are multiple people behind the actual camera it's just he's the one that's in charge of all of them okay so he was the so he filled that role for like 44 different projects wow. including Dragonheart the the Riddick movies like Pitch Black and Riddick uh he was a, he was a cinematographer for Eurotrip i mean wow yeah he was also the camera operator for 1982's the man from snowy river okay uh he operated the thermal camera for 1987's predator so all of those shots from the alien looking at all the soldiers in thermal vision yeah that's david egby holding that thermal camera which is pretty cool yes um he was also the director of photography for the second unit of 2001's crocodile dundee in los angeles I'm assuming well, I'm assuming the second yeah. unit was the one that shot all the Australia footage, and the first unit was all the Los Angeles footage. Yeah, I never yeah, actually but, saw. I, never I actually saw that one. I don't think I saw that one either. I saw the first one. So below David Egby is John Dowding, who, along with his credit as art director for Mad Max and Blue Lagoon in 1980, John Dowding is also credited as the production designer for 31 other projects, including Return to the Blue Lagoon in 1991. Road Games in 1981, The Crocodile Hunter Collision Course, the Steve Irwin movie, and a 1997 movie called Amy. We went on to do quite a bit, although not as much as Grant Page, who was the stunt coordinator for this movie. Grant Page has 80 credits to his name working in either stunt coordinator roles or safety supervisor roles or just doing stunts period like he started working in 1975 and he is still working today that's really saying something especially yeah. now grant page that's the same stunt coordinator that was in the motorcycle accident yeah just before shooting started like two years into his career he got flattened by a truck and continued despite yeah. it <laughs> i think the last time that we or one of the times one of the many times that we've talked about the stuntmen in this movie Someone on our listener page made a comment about there should be stuntman awards. And actually paying attention to the stunt work in a movie, I absolutely agree. These guys work 
so hard and they do the stuff that other people don't want to do. Other people who get paid way more and get more recognition, the stuff that they won't do or can't do, these stuntmen do it and... They, they deserve a lot of credit. Absolutely. Now, interesting thing about Grant Page, he did not come back to do the stunts for Road Warrior, but he did come back to do the stunts for Thunderdome. Okay. So if the stunts feel a little different on the next movie, that's why. Okay. Okay. I, I'm glad you said that because as you were saying it, it occurred to me that when you, when you know a stuntman's work... Can you see, can you notice his absence? Like, will we be able to, analyzing minute by minute, notice the difference between Grant Page's work in Mad Max versus, I'm sure we'll get to know his name very well at some point, but the stunt guy in uh, Road Warrior. Yeah, I don't feel like I have a good enough grip on Grant Page's style of setting up and executing stunts. But I feel like if you pay attention to that sort of thing, like, really closely, you can probably start to see patterns emerging. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the last name on that page is Claire Griffin, who was the costume designer. And this was, like, the second production that she did costumes for. The first one was 1977's Raw Deal. I didn't look that one up too much, but I imagine that going from that one project to a big international release like Mad Max mm-hmm. probably helped her career. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Certainly. I think she did a phenomenal job. It, yeah. it might be easy to write off the complexity of her job because half the people were in uniforms and the other half wore the same thing the entire time. But throughout the movie, especially with the gang, we were able to identify sometimes that was the only way we could identify who people were mm. was just... The color of their helmet or the color of their pants, because that's all we could really see of them. And to identify somebody that well by what they're wearing, I think she did a really good job. Yeah, I mean, you can write, you can say, oh, well, all she had to do was just put them in 1970s clothes. And it's like, no, 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 no. She had to take the design for the uniforms and realize them, make sure that they actually work in a real-world scenario. She had to keep them mended because they were vinyl and kept ripping all the time. Right. She had to dress so many bikers. Yes. <laughs> and and like- I love I love that um, Toe Cutter had the bit of fur over his shoulders. Yep. It was very, like, regal. That combined with his mane, it was very lion-like, you know, king of the forest and, and all that type of stuff. Yeah, pretty awesome. I also really liked, now that we're off on that tangent talking about costumes, I really like that Jessie was wearing her bathing suit and cover-up for, like, all of her climax scenes. Because it really drove home how non-stop it was for her. Yeah. She never got to stop she never got to slow down from the time she left the farm to go have an enjoyable afternoon at the beach to her death she never got to like reset Mm. and that that she wore that cover up the whole time really drove that home i agree okay (laughs) so the next page it talks about sound recordists special effects casting assistant directors and whatnot uh as far as the special effects are concerned They were done by Chris Murray. He has done special effects for 67 different projects, including Gallipoli in 1981, uh, 
two of the Crocodile Dundee movies, the first and second one, several episodes of Farscape, and even Superman Returns, the Chris Which... Routh? Rouse? The, the 2006 one with, you know... Okay. No, I, I know which one you're talking about. Uh, I'm just drawing a complete blank on any actor's names who were involved. I think Kevin Spacey was in that one. Yes, Kevin Spacey <laughs> was um, Lex Luthor. Okay, as a side note, I went and saw Superman Returns in the theater, and I enjoyed Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor. I'm pretty sure that I went and saw it in the theater as well. What year did it come out? Did 2006. Happen? Okay, so I would have been home from college. I can't remember where I was. I may have seen it in the theater. But I I agree. I thought he did it. I enjoyed him as Lex Luthor. Yeah. I mean, that's just about the only thing I enjoyed about that movie, but... <laughs> I don't remember it well enough. <laughs> that's all right. You and everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So... The casting for this movie was handled by Mitch Consultancy, which they've handled casting for about six or seven different productions. They handled Mad Max as well as Road Warrior. So they came back, cast for the second movie, did not come back and cast for the third or fourth movie. So Next, we get to see the production assistant, unit manager, script supervisor, makeup, hair, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Like, I'm really discounting the hairdresser, still <laughs> photography, and second unit photography. Anyway. They're the, all important to the production. The name that stuck out to me there was Viv Methan because she did makeup. She has been working nonstop for movies and television since 1974. Technically a little bit earlier than that because 1974 was the first release date that she got uh, credit okay. for. But as far as movie makeups are concerned, she's a veteran for sure. Yeah. I'm struck by a lot of these people that we're talking about and looking at the span of their careers. Mad Max fell pretty early in most of their careers. Yeah. And I appreciate that, that, you know, uh, working on Mad Max helped to further their career. It kept them on that path to go create and produce other great things. Mm -hmm. So after that title card, we get... Uh... Listing for camera assistant, clapper, loader, gaffer, best boy, boom grips, operator. You know, a lot more behind the scenes stuff. Yep. When The myriad of people that it actually takes to make a movie. Yeah, when you watch The Madness of Max and they show all those still images of the crew next to the boom truck and whatnot. A lot of those guys in that in those pictures. Yep. And really at that point, the minute turns over into, you know, minute 93. But... I wanted to go back to some of the more analytical questions that I had yesterday. Do you want to talk about Jesse? I do. Okay. I do want to talk about Jesse. So my question is this. Was Jesse a fully realized character? Should she have been featured more or less? Oh. Um. So let's start at the first one. Was she a fully realized character? I would give it a soft yes. Yeah. Like because it could have been better, but we did we did learn a lot about her and her personality and how she interacts with Max. My the soft yes is because she never well, no, she does. She does interact with other people. I was going to say she never interacts with anybody else, but she does. And it's a very important part of her story is how she interacts with Toe Cutter. Right. I think because we get to see that Jesse has, you know, a skill in playing the saxophone, she is a stay-at-home mother of a small child who is very healthy. <laughs> you know, we see their apartment. Like, we know that there is depth to Jesse. We know that there is more to her than just being Max's wife. 
I mean, a lot of the situations we see her in are her acting as Max's wife because Max is really our POV character. But I think at the same time, we get enough time with Jesse that we get a good sense of what kind of person she is. You know, the idea that she is caring and really values her family, and yet she's also really tough when she knows that, you know, her personal and the safety of her child are on the line. Yes. Um, it, I was thinking about the, the first half of the movie versus the second half of the movie and how Jesse fits in. First half of the movie, we only see Jesse through Max's point of view. Mm-hmm. It's at home. It's, you know, saying goodbye to her when he has to leave. It's when Max is grieving for Goose and Jesse comes to him and consoles him. It's all from Max's point of view. But then the second half... Max has started to turn his corner. You know, one of his tragedies has just happened. Now, most of the time that we see Jesse, it's on her own. We we get more of them together, but we get the whole scene with Toe Cutter at the beach. Max is nowhere near that. He's completely separated from that. And then we see her in the woods at the beach in the woods again on her own. And it really, that's when I think we get the real character development is when Max is not there. Yeah. I wouldn't say that Jesse necessarily has an arc. I wouldn't say that she really changes over the course of the movie. No, I think part of the point of her is that she doesn't need to. That she is a constant in his life. Yes, exactly. That she is a constant. She has no major character flaw that is presented to us that she needs to overcome. Mm -hmm. She's just, she just is. The thing that I appreciate about Jesse's character is that you can describe Jesse without using her looks or her wardrobe. Like, Jesse is a strong-willed, caring person with a sense of humor that enjoys the simple things, like lying out on the bank of a river or on a beach. Mm -hmm. She enjoys spending time with her family and values that time, you know, above things like someone spending time in the office. Like, you can talk about Jesse, oh, she's got frizzy hair and doesn't like wearing pants, you know. But she's so much more than that. And I really appreciate that. Yes. And, you know, when we first met Jessie, yeah, we made comments about her not wearing pants. But then as we got to the second half of the movie and she really started in on her character development, we never mentioned it again. No. She spent her entire last day not wearing pants and we never mentioned it. Yeah. Because it just wasn't part of her character anymore. Or at least... It was part of her character, but it wasn't, like, the defining element of her character. Right. It wasn't like Harley Quinn in the Suicide movie. The Suicide Squad movie. Her outfit is part of her character. For sure. And if she wore something different from that that outfit, it would change her character. Yes. Like Never at any point, if Jesse was wearing something different, would it make any difference? Exactly. With the idea that Jesse is a realized character, I feel like they could have probably realized her more. I feel like a lot of her aspects are definitely in relation to other characters, like how she's defined. Yes. I would have liked to see her maybe just one small scene at home without Max. Yeah. Maybe with with Sprague. I'm cool with that. Uh, but without Max. Yeah. Like maybe how she, after she said goodbye to him and did the sign language crazy about you, maybe just walk back in the house and sit down at the table to finish her coffee. Something. Yeah. Showing her at home without Max. That 
that, I think that might have been nice. Yeah. I am definitely firmly in the camp that I would like to see more Jesse, but I can't really think exactly where I would fit it in because, like, this movie is an hour and a half. Like, it's a solid 90 minutes, and that's a really good runtime for a movie. It's also kind of the lower end of a runtime for a movie. Yeah. We could throw in a half hour extra material to really flesh this out to a full two hours, but at the same time, would that just be extra fluff? I think it would be fluff. I think the movie is, I don't know if I'd call it perfect the way it is, but it's pretty darn good the way it is. It's nicely concise. It is. It's concise, and it's just like with its words. There's there's not a lot of extra dialogue out there. You know, the the characters say what they need to say and when they don't need to say anything, they can go minutes with no dialogue. Yeah. So I really don't know off the top of my head where I would throw in more Jessie. Yeah. But I definitely agree I would like to see more of her just being. Yes. You know, we got that excellent sequence of just her going down to the ocean and spending the day out in the sun and whatnot. And that was great time spent with that character. And we got to see a lot of how she carries herself, how she reacts to situations. And I would have liked to see more than that. But at the same time, I just, I'm not quite sure where it could fit in. I like your idea of spending time with her after Max leaves, but where this is the story of Mad Max. Right. It's hard to add in a scene where she's not interacting with Max because the story is about Max. Yeah. It's him that we're here to see. (laughs) Right. I was thinking also it might be nice to see a scene between her and May. And I'm trying to imagine, okay, well, what would they talk about? Yeah. One where she's not like half catatonic or they're running for their lives. Right. That's what what we're talking about. I was thinking about, okay, Okay, well, how can we better pass the Bechdel test? Well, what would have been nice? I, I don't know the answer to that question. If we had seen a little bit of May and Jesse interacting in the scene between them arriving at the farmhouse yeah. and that morning where she goes out to the Right, beach. a scene where May tells her about the spot by the beach. I imagine it would go something like they're in the farmhouse, it's the morning, and Jessie is coming into the house after doing something for May. Maybe she's, you know, filled a feeding trough or something like that. Yeah. And so it would say, it would give an opportunity for May to kind of talk about what she has to do living alone with Benno on that farm and how nice it is that Max and Jessie are there to help her out in yeah, exchange for, for them staying at the farm. Yeah. And it would give... Jesse an opportunity to just show off how she's really adept at keeping house like she has domestic skills yeah that while they are in her tool set they don't necessarily like define her like she can still be well she can show off how she is of that younger generation that just because she knows how to take care of things like she still enjoys you know going out to the beach and having fun and doing all that stuff. And so they can have a little bit of a dialogue together. Because from all the Prisoner that we've watched, Sheila Florence is delightful. Oh, she is. And vastly underused in this movie. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Although I gotta say, sometimes when we're watching her character, whose name is Lizzie, and sometimes when we're discussing things, I still want to call her May. Yeah. Which is weird because I know her as Lizzie now. Oh, yeah. We've spent way more time with her as Lizzie than we ever did with her as May. Yes, but she is a delightful actress. It also might have, a scene like that might have answered some questions about the relationship of, of 
either Max or Jesse to May. What is their connection to May? We've kind of guessed based on some clues yeah. that she's a relation of Max's, but that might have been a nice opportunity to clear that up a little bit. Maybe give us a little bit of family history of Max. Yeah, more so than just him talking about his father that one time. Yes, because him talking about his father that one time was very telling. We actually learned a lot, especially in our discussion about expressing love. We learned a lot from that that little story. So learning a little bit more about Max's history, I think we, cur- we could have learned and, and just gathering a little bit of information, we would have learned a lot. Yeah. So I want to spin off from talking about Jesse, talk a little bit about Goose. I have a couple of questions about him. Mainly, what role did Jim Goose play in Max's story, and how does he compare to Jesse as a companion to Max? So I think plot-wise, Goose was there to be the more light-hearted foil to Max's self-seriousness all the time, to be kind of the, the jokester on the force, you know what I mean? Yes, he certainly helped to keep things light, and in our discussions, we were certainly delighted by him mm. several times. Yeah, yeah, I think Goose just adds a sense of levity to a story that at times can be really heavy and really dark. Yes, you know. and I think he serves that exact same purpose to Max. He brings levity to Max's life that might otherwise be a little heavy. Yeah, I feel like Goose allows Max to lighten up a little, to not take everything so seriously all the time. Because they do have a very high-stress career with a lot of danger to it. And the fact that Goose is there to affect Max positively, I think, is a huge benefit to the story. The fact that we can see that there are other people in Max's life that care about him and care about his well-being. Yeah, I I was struck by how Goose handled an injury. And I'm going to equate Goose's broken leg with Max losing his loved ones, which is I know is not a fair comparison. Yeah. But the way that the way that Goose handles something bad happening to him with with levity, he just deals with it. He he still rides his motorcycle, he makes do, and he he doesn't let it get him down and he just, he, he adapts. Okay. So he's not going to be a, a motorcycle cop for a little while. He's going to be Max's partner for a little while. And then when, when he can get back on the motorcycle, then he's a motorcycle cop again. Mirroring that with how Max handles loss. He never, he never adapts. He never, even over time, he never bounces back he's never himself again yeah which is which is how grieving is supposed to work you you go through what you need to go through you go through that grieving process and then at least part of you needs to go back to being the same person you were before you're not going to be a hundred percent the same person because something happened to you Mm -hmm. but you're going to be mostly the same person that you were before yeah something awful you're healing something awful will change you but at the same time something awful doesn't necessarily have to destroy you right you can move on from that like goose was able to like you said mess up his leg but move on from it like yes it changed him for a while but he was able to make the most of it yeah for sure and i feel like goose being around for max's story it set us up as viewers with a good example of how someone can move on and i think having goose there really highlighted max's inability to move on yes 
that Max's tragedy was so severe that he became Mad Max. He lost his mind to vengeance and to grief. Whereas when Goose hurt himself and he lost his ability to function normally, you know, Goose just laughed it off. It's kind of like how Max said, you know, Goose ran a franchise on living. Just the idea of enjoying life. Yes. And I think Max needed to be part of that franchise. Mm-hmm. And once it was gone, he certainly was never the same. Yeah. And it wasn't until it wasn't until after Goose's death that Max forced himself to have that conversation about expressing love with Jesse. I was wondering if the deaths had happened in the opposite order, how things might have been different. Yeah. If Jesse had died and Goose had been there to grieve with him and to console him, would things have turned out differently? Would Max have not gone mad? I think the answer is yes. I, I think agree with it you. It would have been better. I think him losing Jesse and Sprague and having no support yeah. at all is what really wrecked Max. Because Max, if he had lost his wife and child first and then Goose was there to support him and console him, what probably would have ended up happening is we get more of like a, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid scenario where it's now the two of them hunting bikies. And we're going to have the super capable Max and the also super capable but rather lighthearted Goose. Mm-hmm. Like we could have had a buddy adventure film. And even at that point, if he had if he had lost Goose anyways, I think having grieved with Goose would have enabled him to grieve for Goose. Right. At, without going mad. Yeah, so. Now there is one point where Goose really loses his cool and he's not able to just laugh off the situation. And that's when the court officials come to release Johnny. That's yes. when Goose really goes off the cuff. And I feel like that gives us kind of a little bit of a glimpse of what's coming down the line. That even someone as you know, jovial as Goose can snap and that he can lose control and behave atypically of how he usually behaves. I feel like Goose doing that really sets us up for how these officers that are supposed to be professional all the time can just go off the reservation. So I appreciate that role in the story. Yeah, it really does foreshadow Max. And Goose even does it in a more Goose way. Goose is going off the rails and losing his mind. It's very active. It's very aggressive. It's very in your face. Very high energy. Yes. And Max's going off the rails, his going mad, is very quiet. Mm -hmm. He, He goes quite some time without speaking at all. And then when he does speak, it's only, it is quite to the point. There is no, there's no monologue. There's no taunting. There's nothing. He's just doing, he's just doing his business. Yeah. After he loses Jesse, I feel like we don't hear him speak at all until... He says ankle. Exactly. He tells Johnny what to do with the handcuffs and then he outlines to Johnny what Johnny's situation is. And that's it before the end of the movie. Yeah. 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 I, I genuinely like goose and i think he's a huge part of the story just as much as jesse i feel like yes take jesse or goose out of this movie and you've completely destroyed it yes absolutely you need both of them you need you need his his home life and a connection and love and family there and you need his work life a connection best friend love you need that there as well 
Because the two combined are what define Max, and also losing both is what destroys him. So, speaking of love and connections, if you want to connect with us and show us some love, you can go to our website at madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook, and join our listeners page, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute number 92. We'll see you tomorrow. Motorbikes and men, take me to the end of the dream.